Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Heather McDonald, Thomas W. Smith Fellow at Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal and New York Times bestselling author. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, the CLT 8 is coming up on May 5th. Registration details can be found on our website, cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. back to the Anchor Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, today we have Heather McDonald. Uh, Heather is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal, and a New York Times bestselling author. A graduate of Yale, Cambridge, and Stanford University Law School, her writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Republic, and more. Heather, it's amazing to have you with us. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much, Mr. Tate. I'm, I'm honored to be with you. So to start off, uh, can you talk to us about uh, your educational journey? Uh, how has education informed your life? What kind of schools did you go to growing up? Well, education was the most important thing in my life for most of my life. I only wanted to be a student. I could think of nothing. I had no desire to get out of out of school, out of the university. The, being able to sit in the stacks of, of uh, Yale University's Sterling Library and, and read The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer was heaven. I, I could think of no greater privilege than that. Uh, so I I was always a, a serious student, I have to say. I mean, I, I loved learning and um, probably to a fault. So I didn't get involved in a whole lot of a lot of extracurricular stuff. You know, I, I, I just found the um, the lure of language to be overwhelming. But I was also very, very stupid uh, and gullible. So when I was in college, which was at Yale in the 1970s, that was the height of a very crazy literary theory called deconstruction or post-structuralism. And Yale was the place to be. I was taken in by it. So I wasted a vast amount of my college years reading alleged philosophical text by uh, people like Jacques Derrida, the, one of the biggest fraudsters that France has ever created. And at Yale itself, uh, Paul DeMond, who became stranger and stranger in his rhetoric and, and worldview to the point of, I think, absolute insanity. Uh, I poured over these incomprehensible, highly mannered, ignorant ways of looking at language because it was seemed like a secret knowledge it mm. the the main thesis is it its arguments are so absurd that i shrink from from recapitulating them because no viewer will believe it but the main claim is that language always fails that it, communication mm. is impossible and that all literature is about its own failure to communicate this felt like a secret knowledge that put 
its bearers at a higher level of understanding compared to these other silly students who were reading novels because they thought they meant something, who were reading novels because they thought that they gave them insight into human experience and and provided a, a, a level of language that brought one to heights of sublimity. So I wasted my time doing that. I aspired to go forward in academia. I wanted to be a comparative literature professor because that's where deconstruction was at its highest uh, density. I went to Cambridge University for two years where I had the privilege of of going further into Renaissance, uh, English Renaissance literature. I read a lot of Ben Jonson. But the saving factor for me in, in England, I studied linguistics. And I particularly liked speech act theory, J.L. Austin and Searle, John Searle at, at UC Berkeley. And that started to open my eyes to the absurdity of deconstruction. I nevertheless went back to Yale to start my PhD. And when I heard Paul DeMond saying the exact same things that he was saying when I left two years earlier, I realized this is a complete dead end. These people are are promoting a a narrative about language that is completely fictional. It was an emotional, this sounds sort of hyperbolic and self-pitying and lacrimose, but it it was an emotional, real sort of trauma for me because I had revered these people. I revered all my professors. They were, knowledge was eros. To be wise was a source of of love, desire. I loved my professors because they represented knowledge to me. Mm. And when I realized that many of the ones whom I had revered, I thought I concluded were pursuing a complete false idea of language and literature. And my whole career aspirations fell apart. That was very difficult. So I I left, I, I didn't even finish my first year of graduate school in comparative literature. And I developed such anger at the direction that the university was taking, especially in the 80s, after I'd left, when that's when multiculturalism hit, when you had the absurdity of students reading texts to find race and gender oppression, when you had females saying it was oppressive to read a male writer. Fortunately, in the 70s, as crazy as deconstruction was, I had the privilege of reading Chaucer, Spencer, Milton, Wordsworth, Alexander Pope, Wallace Stevens, without anyone thinking to moan that we were reading dead white males. It never came up, as incredible as that now seems. The 80s hit, all that went out the window. And so I eventually started writing about the travesty that is higher education today because it breaks my heart on a daily basis, the failure to have to teach students the gratitude they should feel for this amazing inheritance. Heather, in a recent article uh, in City Journal, uh, The Bias Fallacy, you discuss at length the efforts to eliminate objective measures of intellectual skills, most notably standardized testing. Uh, You write that it is nihilistic. Can you discuss this movement to dismantle traditional academic benchmarks in the name of equity? Uh, What events acted as a precursor and how did it come to be this way? It's been going on for decades, Mr. Tate, and it is all driven by the 
racial academic skills gap. This is something that nobody wants to talk about. It's uncomfortable. Uh, the idea that we have white supremacy is absurd because whites themselves turn their eyes away from this. But it turns out that there is at least a standard deviation in every objective measure of academic skills between blacks and whites. And the gap between blacks and Asians is even larger. And so people, it seems, are secretly despairing of closing that gap and instead are trying to dismantle any objective test of academic skills. You know, we know from the National Association of Educational Progress, the NAEP test, that Black eighth graders, when it comes to math skills, 53% of Black eighth graders don't even have basic math skills. The NAEP uh, defines basic math skills as a mere partial mastery of eighth grade math concepts. 40% of black eighth graders don't have basic reading skills. Uh, Again, they don't even have partial mastery of reading. That failure to to conquer academic skills never gets better. The, The skills gap continues into high school, into college. We see similar gaps on the SAT, on the GREs, on the LSAT, on the MCATs, on the GMATs, the business school admission test. And so the solution to all issues with disparate impact today is to get rid of the benchmark. We're shooting the messenger. Uh, they, They bring us bad news, which is that the academic skills gap has not closed. And so we're declaring these colorblind objective tests, which were instituted precisely to overcome any possibility of of discrimination, whether on a class basis or race basis. We're declaring colorblindness itself now uh, racist. And we're we're, we're declaring the acquisition of skills like literacy and math as racist, expectations of accuracy as racist. Obviously, this is immensely condescending uh, and it is not going to improve the academic performance of black students. So in your article, you also note that ever more sweeping depreciation of Western civilization and society today. We've had many discussions on this topic, including a conversation with Wall Street Journal columnist Megan Cox Gurdon on Homer's Odyssey being yanked from schools. It's, it's, this is crazy. What further fault lines will be created in, in civil society if wholesale vilification of Western civilization continues? Well, right now, we don't have a fault line because I'm going to use a term that is, again, very politically incorrect, but I'm, I'm taking that term from the Democratic Party and from progressives. That term is whites. Uh, We hear incessantly from President Biden, from Vice President Kamala Harris, from Democratic politicians, from activists, from corporations that whites are the problem in this country. I mean, all you need to do about it is to call an institution white and God forbid white and male. I mean, that's the kiss of death in order to discredit it completely. Uh, At this point, there's no fault line because it seems like the majority of whites are hang their heads in penance and say, yes, we are guilty for all things. Uh, the fact of the matter is by demographic reality, 
European civilization was white, just as African civilization was black and Chinese civilization was Chinese. Nobody complains about teaching Chinese history with a focus on Chinese and having almost no attention uh, to whites or to blacks. Same with, with African history. Europeans, there were very, there were no blacks on the European continent uh, until the 19th century, virtually. This legacy came to us not because of race, but because I would argue it is the most profound, multifaceted, diversified accomplishment in human history. If you look simply at the scientific results, nothing comes close. But the political ideas that came out of Western civilization are the ideas that are fueling today liberation movements across the globe, movements to be free of government tyranny, the ideas of limited government, of human rights, of toleration, secularism, these are all Western concepts that were developed over hundreds of years of bad experience with government censorship, tyranny, arbitrary uh, destruction of dissent and dissenters. Every place has adopted those ideals. As far as art and culture, I admit to being partisan, if, if education had time to give equal treatment to the great classics of Indian civilization and Chinese civilization, of course we should do it, but it is, we don't. Mm. There's a limited number of time. Our primary obligation is to Western civilization. And I would argue there again, the development of the Western novel is astounding. The, the movement from the medieval Renaissance allegorical epic to the mid 19th century realistic novel is an extraordinary journey of stylistic epistemological evolution. Classical music, because of the unique fact that it is notated unlike other musics across the world has allowed a diversification of style that is unparalleled. The great British philosopher Michael Oakeshott said that education was about the transmission of an inheritance from one generation to the next. Mm. That is not going on in our culture. And yeah. the risk, again, I mean, maybe there will be a backlash. I'm not seeing it yet. I'm not seeing yet any politician in the United States at least stand up and say, we are not going to apologize for the European Anglo-American tradition, but obviously the greater we are ignorant about these monumental accomplishments of the rule of law, and we're, we're, we're dismantling freedom of speech by the minute. Uh, and, and the idea of neutral fact finders, that also places our political freedoms at risk. Hmm. You know, Heather, in a number of interviews, I've heard you use the word sublime, we're talking about the beauty of uh, this kind of education, uh, what you experienced in the 1970s at Yale before uh, really the rise of this nonsense, where you, where you could just enjoy Shakespeare for Shakespeare. Um, well, what is the connection? Because, you know, I, I spent 10 years in public schools, never heard anything in teacher training or anything else, but any connection with learning and beauty. Can you speak about this connection for a moment? 
Well, artists have striven to use expression, whether it's language or paint or musical notes, until very recently in human history to create beauty. They believed in beauty. I mean, Aristotle talks about the sublime and and beauty. Aesthetics uh, have struggled with how, how to define it, but there was a desire to uplift human beings, even as, you know, hundreds of years ago, human life was absolutely squalid. Uh, even if you were in the aristocracy, the degree of disease and the lack of plumbing, the lack of hygiene, clean food, it, death was everywhere. The childbirth, childbirth, you know, Ben Johnson wrote poems on the death of children. Death was everywhere. And yet the Baroque, whether it's the paint, you know, the frescoes of Tiepolo or the, the extraordinary energy of the symphonies of, of Mozart and the Haydn Sturm und Drang symphonies, they strove to uplift the human spirit. And these idioms can seem foreign now, you know, that students, classical music is alien. Uh, a lot of the painting styles seem mannered, but it is the role of education to develop student sensibility so that they can appreciate uh, the artifice of art mm-hmm. and understand the depths of expression that have been handed down to us. Heather, two quick final questions here for you. Um, you. You've been willing to put yourself out there and say things that that most academics, regardless of what they may believe deep down, have not been willing to say. Um, where does that boldness come from? <laughs> well, you know, I'm not in a university setting, so I can sort of be a hit and run driver. Uh, I, I, I deplore the cowardice of academics, but I also don't know if I would be in a, any act any differently. They are, you know, universities are hothouse environments. Uh, The students are now totally out of control. The power that they have grabbed and have been given by these cowardly administrators. I mean, they're going around. It it is like it's worse, really, almost than the French Revolution. I mean, they haven't literally set up a guillotine, but it's very close. Observing a a friend of mine now at, at Rutgers uh, law school, who is the mob has come after her for no reason whatsoever. It's just the, it is the corruption of absolute power. So I, I'm not in that environment, but I also, I can't stand idiocy and I can't stand falsehood. And, you know, recently we've had this woman fired from Georgetown law school who was teaching in a law school clinic there who spoke the truth. I mean, the data bear her out that the, a uh, vast majority of her black students end up at the bottom of her class. Why? Because Georgetown insists on admitting students with racial preferences who are not competitively qualified with their peers. But when you catapult any student into an environment for which he's not qualified, if you took me and put me into MIT for gender balance, I would flunk out because I would not be able to keep up with my peers in math and science. So this woman said this in a private conversation that happened to be recorded to a fellow academic, she was fired by her dean for telling the truth. So I can tell that truth, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hide it. I can't stand the BS 
about pretending that the problem in this country is white supremacy. It is not a white supremacist country. It once was, it is not now, and we should recognize that truth. Heather, final question for you. And the feedback that we get is, is this is, for many people, their favorite part of the Anchored Podcast. We have more and more high school students and college students uh, tuning into this. Uh, so they're listening. If there's one text that, that has maybe been most formative, impactful for you, maybe it's a book that you come back to every year. Maybe it's a book that you want to tell them, whatever else you do this year, read this book. Uh, what is that for you? Well, one is very difficult. I mean, read read Middlemarch, read Trollope, uh, read Zuleika Dobson by Max Beerbaum. For me, I would say I, I've come to the conclusion that I think the greatest book ever written is the memoirs of Hector Berlioz. Berlioz was a 19th century French composer, best known from a, a very crazy work called the Symphonie Fantastique, Fantastic Symphony, that is an mm. autobiographical program piece about his very tragic love affair with a British Shakespearean actress uh, that he portrays her in the piece as a part, as a witch, you know, trying to do the witch's Sabbath. He's actually a better writer, I think, than composer. His memoirs are the most astounding portrait of 19th century musical life. And he is an amazing stylist. He is an enthusiast. He, he championed Shakespeare in, in France. He championed the symphonies of Beethoven, which had been were routinely being mauled by publishers as being too radical, and they would rewrite the scores completely. Berlioz writes in just utter zeal and joy about the beauty of art. So it is a historical document of enormous uh, worth, but it is also a voice of an individual who felt, who suffered, who went through periods of joy and elation and had the ability to express it in a way that I, I find just simply amazing. I would also add, uh, if you want to have a perspective on American history, H.L. Uh, Mencken's Happy Days, which is his childhood autobiography of growing up in Baltimore in 19th century, a day before, a time before safetyism and when young boys were allowed to be young boys and raise hell. Heather, super grateful to have you. Again, we're here with the one and only Heather McDonald. This is the Anchor Podcast. Heather, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure, Mr. Tate. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week. Thank you.